0: Hello and welcome to Basically with me, Stephanie Preisner. Today, I am honoured to have my first female politician. Um, You guys asked for it and I reached out and here you have it. Mary Lou MacDonald, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. You're the first female politician I've had on the podcast. Hooray! Um, With two men preceding you, which is typical. Sorry, that's my doorbell. I didn't turn my phone on silent. Um... So thank you for joining me. Do you want to tell me and some of my listeners how and why you decided to get into the role that you're in or get into politics at all?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, it's really nice to meet you because I'm used to kind of hearing you and reading you. (laughs) And so I'm really delighted to to meet you, Stephanie. Um, So how did I get into politics? That's a very good question. Some of it was by choice um, and some of it was by chance. Okay. so I suppose fundamentally the reason why I got involved in politics is because I'm the kind of person who has always had an interest in things that are happening around me obviously directly in my own life, but actually beyond myself. So I've always had, you know, a sense of things and a sense of other people's lives and things that were happening. Um, And I think that's actually the most fundamental part of politics is you have to be connected to your own experience, your own views, your own aspirations, your own kind of ideological positions, if you want to go up to that level. (laughs) But you also have to have an interest in other people, like because that's, When all is said and done, that's what politics is about. So I grew up in a political family with a small p in that I'm the first person in my family ever to run for election. I don't come from any kind of dynasty or any of that kind of crack. Um, But I was raised by a mother who... Had that kind of curiosity about the world and what was happening all around us. So they would have
0: always been like talking about what was always, happening in Irish I politics. I mean, always,
1: and not just in Irish politics. I mean, internationally. No, so yeah. I was kind of raised in a household where you looked outwards, where you argued your corner, and I tell you, the arguments still to this day at times are pretty uh, hot and heavy. Were your parents a, were you a Sinn Fein family? Well, no. Um, and actually my mum and I were only talking about this recently. Like where I grew up, there was no Sinn Fein, you know? Where did you the, grow up? There just wasn't I'm from South Dublin. Right, okay. Um my mother came from a family that was extremely Republican. So I grew up in a Republican family, I suppose a nationalist family, but no, not a Sinn Fein. A Sinn Féin, because where I grew up, there, there, there wasn't Sinn Féin so, in evidence. I mean, for kind of younger people who who might have an interest in politics now, they look and they see all of the parties, and Sinn Féin is very much in the mix there. It wasn't always that way. Why so? Know? Well, because the Sinn Féin of old, you know, at the time of the revolutionary period, a lot of things that we've, you know, we've celebrated centenaries of that Sinn Féin kind of fractured. Into different parties, particularly because of the civil war, the partition of Ireland, people took a pro treaty or an anti treaty stance, and that's essentially where the civil war parties Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael came from. Yeah. So my
0: understanding is that Ireland was under British rule. Yeah. And Eamon De Valera and Michael Collins worked together as like one unit, and Michael Collins went off to try and get. The Ireland back from the Brits and he came back but he was only able to get 26 counties Sadly, and people who think that he did the best he can are Fianna Gaelers mm-hmm. and people who think he was wrong to come back without the 32 counties are Eamon de Valera's side which are Fianna Fall. but Eamon de Valera and the people under him were actually Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin and they split within themselves as well All of them initially were that's the gist of it but okay. all of them initially
1: were Sinn Féiners F- Fine Gael, Fianna Finnafall—the whole lot, okay. all of them trace their roots back to back to Sinn Féin. But you're right; the time came to kind of, and in fairness, everyone was trying to get Ireland free and to you know, um, and then a deal, a bargain was struck. Um, Michael Collins championed that. De Valera led the rump that were against that. So that's where you have the pro and anti kind of treaty and civil war. Sinn Féin war. were on
0: Amy De Valera's side of that, or no?
1: Well, no, Sinn Féin split. Well, okay. they left Sinn Féin. And, and by the way, Michael Collins doesn't have that kind of close, that, that direct connection with Fine Gael. Okay, Gael. Um, it's, it's a little bit more complicated okay. <laughs> than that. But look, long story short, Your family, there was a time where everybody was on the same page. Because the, the the country was in very severe difficulties. We had been colonised. The land had been taken away. There was issues around the language. I mean, we our people were poor, discriminated against, and, and, and. So once upon a time, we all agreed that Ireland should be free. Of course, there were issues with some of the our citizens and our friends in the north of the country who saw things differently and who wanted the British connection to remain. And I suppose the the history and, and the roots of all of our political parties in the south emanate from what was a very, very intense struggle against British rule to end British rule. And then, of course, tip, in typical Irish fashion, um, the splits occurred and then there were splits within splits. Yes. But you can trace both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil back yeah. to a time where they originated from Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin.
0: And so if your family were Republican. They were not, anti-treaty. They yeah. were, so they were, but not Sinn Féin, because there was no mm. Sinn Féin at the time in South Dublin. They Dover. were Fianna Fáil. So they yeah, were I Fianna mean, Fáil. my family, by tradition, would, would have been And then. so is it just about, did people decide, people who were anti-treaty then decide to be either Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin, depending on the methods through which they wanted to achieve that Republican goal? Well,
1: Fianna Fáil was found then in 1926 uh, and what happened was the IRA of the day, most of it went with those who who established uh, Fianna Fáil and the Fianna Fáilers then fought elections and so on and then eventually entered the Dáil. And here's the gas thing, you know a lot of the negative stuff that comes against us, you heard it in the last election, Sinn Féin and you know you can't trust them and and don't let these people in and these people are dangerous. All of that stuff ran in the 1920s and the 1930s against Fianna Fáil at that time when they were coming into kind of parliament and into the Dáil. So it's kind of ironic when, uh, particularly in the last election, when I heard Fianna Fáil leaders and that having a go at us and calling us names. And I said, ha ha. You, you borrowed that from your friends in Fine Gael who said exactly the same things about you,
0: in the except 19th, 20th, several generations and ago. ago. And how were Fianna Fáil able to disassociate themselves from the IRA then? Because I've never heard of people associating Fianna Fáil with the IRA. It's something that I always well, say. Well, it, it is. I mean,
1: here's the gas thing that um, if you check the history of... All of the major Irish political parties, they all had an association, actually grew from the IRA. And you mentioned Michael Collins. Michael Collins, firstly and foremost, he was an IRA man. That, that that was his foremost thing before he was a politician, before he was a minister for finance. And of that generation, they never really put distance between themselves and the reality of what happened in their lifetimes. What they did with varying degrees of success was to move politics on. Okay, You know, because ultimately, if war is the failure of politics, well, then politics has to succeed. You have to have a game
0: plan. You have to give alternative pathways to achieve political ends. So is it the case that just because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been in power for longer, because Sinn Féin haven't been, yeah. they've had the opportunity to have policies and politics that rem- that move the story on from their connection to the IRA, whereas you not being empowered. That's why the association is still with you.
1: Well, you could say that, but you could equally say that there was, uh, our our troubles didn't end in the 1920s. You know, you go through and you go through the 30s, the 40s, you go through economic depression, you go through all of these things, different skirmishes and kind of low level conflict in those years. But then the late 1960s and into the 70s, things kick off in the north. Spectacularly, catastrophically, dramatically. And at that point, then um, things get really, really difficult for everybody, for the whole island, but pr- particularly for people living in the north. And people initially came out looking for their civil rights. They looked to have a vote, they looked to have a job, they looked to be housed because people lived in squalor and poverty. And there was a section of citizens in the north that frankly weren't wanted and were mm-hmm. second class citizens. That was beaten off the streets, shot off the streets and then of course the physical, the the violent conflict erupts and that tragically went on for decades. And I suppose what then, to answer your question, Stephanie, distinguishes us, uh, Sinn Féin is that we are an all-island party that we represent, my party and I as, as a political leader, represent people in in Belfast and Derry and Armagh as much as in Cork and okay. Limerick and Galway. So
0: you're tied up in those. Absolutely. So it's, it's a
1: national, it's a national movement. And I suppose I said to you once upon a time, everybody agreed that Ireland should be free. Like we've never strayed from that belief. And I hope now actually in the times that we live in now, that we're all going to kind of get back on that page again, even though there's been a lot of hurt and injury and sadness that has happened over those intervening years. We now have peace. We now have a viable, robust democratic process. And I really hope that now will be our moment, our generation, my generation, your generation may be more to the point and younger, the moment where we fix the thing that was broken and that we end partition. And I think that is... An incredibly exciting thing. And you asked me why am I in politics and why I stay in politics is because I think we can do that. Have I absolutely believe, absolutely, not, not just united, but I believe we can have a, an equal Ireland. What would that look like? I think we can. I think it will look like um, it, it's I would nearly describe it as an entire society and people getting the chance to turn the page. Okay. It'll be an Ireland that will have learned, I hope, from the many, many mistakes that we have made in the past. So,
0: What are the people, what are the British, the people in Northern Ireland who are loyal to the crown and want don't want a united Ireland? Are they, loyal? what are they called? Unionists, loyalists? Unionists, okay. loyalists,
1: well it, it, they're called whatever they call okay. them, so you know, they're unionists. They so I get all the terms mixed oh, up. <laughs> I know. And what happens them to them in that vision then? They have to be. And that's a a tricky one, because on the one hand, we have to accept and respect the fact that when we have our debate and our referendum on unity, they're going to come out and argue against it. And they will make their case, which they're absolutely entitled to do. But at the same time, we have to create a mechanism wherein everyone can have their first option. But if your first option isn't available to you what does what does option 2 what does plan b and what does plan c look like okay so i know from talking to people who are unionist or loyalist or british you know who are british uh, citizens they have some ideas believe it or not as to what this this new chapter right. this new ireland might look like so they have and are entitled to the same space And the same opportunities to contribute to this debate
0: as anybody else. So to be like things like coming up. Now, obviously, I'm being, I'm overlooking the details, but things like coming up with a new flag and a new anthem that we don't just take the, we don't, because we are the larger geographic space, we don't just absorb them and enforce our own, like enforce the republic on top of them that we find a new version? Well, absolutely. I, I don't I don't want the new United
1: Ireland just to become a what we Republic. have now, but bigger. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be a complete waste of a huge opportunity. I was saying to you about learning lessons. So I hope we've learned the lesson that, you know, you have to respect people's beliefs and their religious beliefs and their views and allow for all of that. But that, you know, the the state that we live in has to facilitate all of that. It can't be dictated to by any church, any one church, be that Catholic, be it, you know, a Protestant church or any other belief system. I hope that we've learned that you treat citizens equally. So women enjoy their full rights and, Mm -hmm. you know, and that all of our citizens, irrespective of colour or class or creed, that everybody gets a fair shake at things. I hope we've learned that you use the resources of your country, you know, for the collective good, not simply to enrich a very small section of our people. So things like the right to a steady roof over your head you know to to a home um, the right to have decent work the right to health care when you need it and also then the responsibility to contribute to your society that we can nail all of those things down in a shared framework and actually if you go back and read the proclamation of 1916 you know the Easter proclamation speaks to all of those things and they were on it like that that generation of people were had it down to a T more than 100 years ago so For me as an Irish Republican, that's kind of the guiding document. Um,
0: So if Sinn Féin were in government in the Republic now, Mm -hmm. would that be something that, well obviously Covid aside, that you would have been like, how would the last six months have looked differently if Sinn Féin had been able to form a majority government back in February? Or well,
1: even happened. nobody was in a position to form a majority Sorry, yes, okay. government. So, but, but had we been in government, a couple of things would look, we still wouldn't be looking at the sky and wondering, you know, is there a plan for affordable housing? When might we see it? You know, because that's where we're at at the minute. The current minister has produced no plan. We had set out our very ambitious plans for very... High level targets in terms of housing delivery and affordability. So you would have that. That would be published, and COVID or no COVID, because construction is back. Uh, I I would believe that that we would have that underway. How would you, that be paid for? Well, you, at the moment, everything is being paid for by by what they call deficit spending. So every every country and every economy across the globe is borrowing. Okay. we're lucky that we can borrow at negative sort of rates. rates. So yeah.
0: so we can we can But before the COVID hit, during the when Sinn Fein put out its election manifesto, yeah. what was the plan for the spending then? Because then the ECB wasn't giving negative rates. No, it wasn't, but we were still we were
1: still in a in a fairly healthy um place financially. So European So borrowing. So yeah, but I mean all of the instruments that you can that you can access because to build any form of infrastructure and to build housing, we have to invest like it's not going to it's not going to happen out of yep. thin air except that. But y- you're never going to convince me that you simply say, well, this is too expensive or we can't afford it in terms of housing people because the cost of what we currently have lived with for the past five years and more, the costs of that have been extremely high. There's an entire generation locked out of any prospect of ever owning their home. There's people, kids being brought up in B&Bs. There's people living in like totally unsuitable and unsafe accommodation. And I think we knew that during the election and we know, I think all of us know, if we're honest, that we have to fix that and that we have to invest in it. But like COVID then came, bang a public health emergency that was all about your home being your sanctuary and your safe space where you could isolate or you know restrict your movements and that was fine if you had a home yeah but it was very very difficult when you don't or if you're like the many many thousands of people
0: who hotels. live in
1: in the box room of their mothers or their father's yeah. home and sometimes with their own children so like the writing's on the wall for us now and of course we have to be smart and thoughtful in terms of how we invest public money. I'm all for that, but like, there's no point in us pretending that we can get away without investing it in in housing for our people. We we simply have to do it.
0: And is it? And this isn't a leading question. I'm genuinely asking: Is it um, not a, a policy? Basically, other political parties who haven't prioritised housing in the way that you say that Sinn Féin would, do you think there's a reason they're doing that? Like, does it does it serve them to have people living in hotels? Or why? Because sometimes I hear people say things like, oh, all of these party ministers are landlords, so they don't want to ha- give people their own houses because then they lose money. But is that a narrow view of what is actually kind of an epidemic of homelessness that we have?
1: Well... It, it, there are there are many many landlords in the doll. That's true. Yeah. Um, I'm not one of them. I don't think any of my party colleagues are. Um, but I take your point. Of course, it would be it would be wrong, and it would also be unfair to say that's the reason even, that we have yeah. a housing crisis. So that's that that's not where it's at. But here is what is accurate: is that the the establishment politics believes that the market and private developers deliver housing. And that's the policy that's been pursued by Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Tweedledum, Tweedledee back and forth for for a long time now. And what we have learned is that if you rely only on the private market and developers to provide housing, you're going to find people who are homeless and you're going to find people who simply can't afford to either rent or to buy their own home. So the big philosophical and political shift that needs to happen is to understand, yes, of course, private developers will develop and they're perfectly free to do so. But the state can't be on the sidelines standing, watching this calamity unfolding. And bear in mind, generations ago, when Ireland was much poorer, governments then found it in themselves to get the resources and to build the houses. That's how Cabra got built, yeah, where you and I live. Yeah. yeah. So, But th- that was a Fianna Fáil government, though, wasn't yeah. it? Back in the day, that's exactly who it was, which makes it all the more inexcusable that they have literally travelled the road of kind of hands-off, leave it to the developers and leave it to the private market. It's just wrong. It's the wrong approach. So okay. the right approach... Is that the the state leads out? We're not seeing that now. I mean, so far, uh, and we've had COVID, so construction has been a bit slower. But I mean, you, you're seeing like office blocks and hotels and all of that stuff, and this um, these shared living spaces. What what are they called again? Co living. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. It's it's like living in a closet. It's like you in a tiny space. They're, they're the modern equivalent of tenements, except they look glossy when they're new. And they're going ahead with these, um, despite the fact that we know in a global pandemic... I mean,
0: sharing one of those is a real phase five activity. Like that's <laughs> but not you know something I mean? you want to that be doing. You need,
1: that you need space Peace. and people, for hygiene reasons and yeah. for public health reasons. So those lessons clearly by this government haven't been learned. And that is...
0: Just desperate stuff. So a a technical note there. You're, as the leader of Sinn Féin, you are what is called in government, the leader of the opposition. Yes. Right. So this podcast is about making complex things basic. So I'm just trying to explain that. Is there. So we asked Micheál Martin what like the kind of role of Taoiseach Mm -hmm. was. And we were talking to Pascal and we'll be. Digging into kind of each of the roles differently to see what the difference between a TD and a minister and a councillor and all these things are. Is part of your remit as the leader of the opposition, I know that you hold the government accountable Mm -hmm. for what they're doing, but is there, like, do you ever, do they ever come out with something a policy say and as a leader of the opposition you're like oh Christ I have to find a problem with this now because I have to say something <laughs> That's a good question. is that like part of your role to find problems so can I just say initially like just because you're a TD because I get
1: this when you talk to people that say well you're in government and you're kind of saying no I'm not, I'm not in, in government I'm like in I'm I'm in the opposition so when you're elected a TD what we all have in common is that we represent the you know people in your constituency. who elect us but also then the people generally so in opposition the, the job is to keep the government's feet to the fire, to put them through their paces to where they're making a hames of things. And Christ, we've had a lot of opportunities recently with that to keep them to account. And But it's also about presenting alternatives. Okay, And it is also sometimes where something is being done correctly to actually find common cause. So you shouldn't be. You know, you know, licking your lips with glee, saying "Hooray, hooray! This is a disaster!" Like, but is dis- there a bit of
0: that where you are like, they <laughs> really missed this"? No, But up. disastrous
1: politics is bad for everyone. And to be honest with you, we've had such a, a sequence of disasters recently. Can I tell you, as leader of the opposition, it's kind of exhausting. You are kind of saying this because this can't continue. Things at one stage were such a mess that you, you said to yourself, "You know." How do you even explain to people, like what, how, for or example? why it is so messy? So, politics is um, is about. So, it's about that piece around keeping people to account, and for that reason, it can get quite hot and heavy, and it can get a bit fraught. Yeah, um, and people will see, you know, across the chain, people can get very up to high dudgeon, and and it's a battle of ideas. Okay, so you know where your ideas are fundamentally wrong. You'll stand your ground and you'll make your case. But I mean, on important things like COVID, you support when things when when things are were going right. Well, of course you were. They were listening to the WHO, the World Health Organization, doing all the things that were safe. Of course you have to play your part in saying that. Or Brexit. Okay, you know we actually managed to have, and we still have, with the exception of the Democratic Unionist Party in the north we actually have a very strong common platform okay. as irish people and politicians and i actually think that's to our credit i we're not given credit for much at times and that's grand and fair enough and we have our differences but you know there's been key moments where
0: we've all put on that thing called the green jersey this week's episode is sponsored by the ux design institute they offer unique university credit rated online courses in ux design so if you're looking to change careers you can take their six-month professional diploma and become a UX designer, even if you've got no previous experience in design or coding. You want to know what a UX designer does? Well, if you're going to do the course, you probably should know. It's about how it feels to use a product, like use an app or use a website. So you know when you're trying to like type something in your phone and the keyboard switches from numbers to letters, or if you're trying to put in the Wi-Fi code and it won't let you, you have to keep going in between the numbers and the letters and it's really annoying. That is a type of UX design. So it will be your job as a UX designer to spot small details that add up to making the experience of the user simpler and more enjoyable. So if it sounds like something that you'd like to do, you don't need any design or coding experience, visit uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash basically to find out more. And so, again, coming back to the theme of the podcast, which is to make complex things basic, during the election, Sinn Féin tweeted also, several people had said that there was a kind of a, consp- an almost a conspiracy, an anti-democratic conspiracy against Sinn Féin to keep Sinn Féin out of government. And there was this kind of narrative around the cabinet being formed by people who were elected several, like on the 6th, 7th, 8th count. How does it feel when you see things like that, that you know from being in politics are not true, that it doesn't matter what level of count you get in? Like, is it? So anybody who is elected to
1: the doll, you see anyone that you see sitting in there, speaking in there and making their, all of us are legitimately and equally elected. Some people have gotten more votes, some people have gotten elected more quickly, but you're either elected or, or you're, you're not, not elected. elected. You can't be well elected or badly elected. So yeah. I did see that, and that kind of puzzled me. And I, I only imagine it's people who don't fully understand, understand po- this proportional representation. Yeah. Um, on the thing of kind of keeping us out, and I, it was I actually used the word conspiracy, and I was, or, saying, you know, you know, I, I'm a lover of language, so I love words and what. But they is mean. it a conspiracy, so Mary? A, a conspiracy. Conspiracy is a term that is applied in its literal form. To mean an illegal and secretive act. And it clearly was not that. Okay. But used in its wider term, and we use language more widely, we're not specifically literal in how we use words. There was absolutely a maneuver amongst the kind of the status quo parties the old parties to keep, to keep it. Sinn Féin out and But listen, didn't we
0: all turn around eventually and say look we will talk to Sinn, Sinn Féin
1: Where it was where the, the word conspiracy falls down in its use is that actually they made no secret of the fact right, that okay. they, were, they were kind of bragging about it saying hooray hooray we're going to keep these guys out ironic now when you look at how chaotic they are Michal had a wee wobble and kind of said, well, maybe we should on the night that all the votes were being counted mm-hmm. because we had a very strong electoral showing. Momentarily, he said, ah, maybe thinking out loud, maybe I should go and talk to Sinn Féin. And then he kind of he back came out. back from it. And it, look, we have many, many um, things and criticisms and differences with Fianna Fáil, with Finnegan, with all of them. But I had fought the campaign And I still believe that you talk to everybody. Like, I just think that's the grown-up thing to do. And then you can either agree or disagree. You can either provide a a platform for government or you can't. But the idea that, and it's kind of arrogant, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of, it's... There seems to be like a sense of entitlement. Exactly. Like, we belong
0: in government, so we're not. And you don't.
1: And And you might stop. And I have a problem with that as a citizen because the people who vote for me are equal to the people, people who, who vote for anyone else. And yeah. it, it's not about me. I'm and not, in some I,
0: cases, they might be the same people. Like, because yeah, of proportional possibly, representation, yeah, yeah. they could
1: easily have voted of for course. you and someone uh, else. Oh, uh, Absolutely. So I'm kind of beyond, at this stage of my career, being feeling insulted by <laughs> any of that. But I felt that kind of for the people who vote for us. I was like, hang on. You know, if uh, people across the country in in constituencies all across the land vote for a Sinn Féin candidate... Like, respect them. Even if you don't, you don't like us or you don't like our politics. Have a little bit of respect and a little bit of decorum for, for, for just the people.
0: And then, what? so is it the case that then if they refused to talk to you, it was just kind of impossible for you to form a government? Or why... Well,
1: it, it would have been possible... Perhaps to form what they call a minority government. Minority governments are interesting because you're in government, but you don't really have the numbers that you need to guarantee votes to get through. Because ultimately, forming a government is about saying, great, we have the numbers, we have a majority. So the policies on housing, on health that we care about, we can actually get them through and win a vote on them. So... A minority government means that you don't have the numbers. So on a case by case basis, you, you have, have to, to go around. and argue that to
0: very messy. I used to explain the forming of a government like coming out of coppers and there's a taxi and he says, you I will go to where you want, but I'm only leaving if you have eight people in the car. Yeah. And in majority government, you get eight people who want to go to Cabra, so you're grand. But otherwise... You like a minority government two people want to go to Cabra someone else wants to go to Dundrum someone else wants to go to Fibsborough so like every time you come to a traffic light you have to have this big negotiation about which way you're going, you're to, going to turn because yeah, yeah. if the Dundrum person is like I'm getting out the whole car collapses. the whole government stop. collapses the journey starts yeah. so actually, you could have had that but yeah, it would have been pretty unstable not, No,
1: it, it would have been it would have been very unstable it would have been messy and the the programme that we presented um, means and meant that we were looking to do things very very differently and I was very conscious that you need you needed a good you needed a gallop at that you need time you would need time and you couldn't be in a situation where you would be at the mercy of people who are absolutely opposed mm-hmm. to the kinds of approaches that we wanted we talked to everyone who would wanted to, to talk to us who would talk to us to the greens the sock Dems um people before profit independents, you name it and actually, We did some good work with them. You know, we actually got to, but we didn't have the numbers. So I'm very conscious when I was out and about and maybe even people listening to that podcast would be saying, that's right, Mary Lou, but you didn't run enough candidates.
0: You know, and and that's fair enough and lesson learned. Are you confident that all of the candidates that you did run would be functioning, competent TDs?
1: Yes. um, And I know... um, you know, when somebody has never been at TD before, even, and I can speak for myself, when I initially was elected, I was elected to the European Parliament first uh-huh. back in t- 2004. Um, So I was there before I was in the Dáil. So I had some experience, but even at that, going into the Dáil is kind of daunting. And you learn on the job.
0: Right. So It's, it's, kind it's of like a lots of things. Of you can
1: read the book, you can be an observer, but it's a completely different thing when it's you and you're in the chamber and then you learn your trade you learn how to even simple things how to speak in the dol how to how to question you know how to how to hold people to account how to table parliamentary questions and the whole functioning of the Dáil. I don't know anybody who has gone in the gates on day 1 And and um, function perfectly as a a TD. It's
0: probably kind of lucky then because it would have been a real baptism of fire if all these new TDs from Sinn Féin had come in and then had to deal with COVID, no?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, look. Well, I'm not saying it's it's a blessing. It's it's like, but I think it's the same for anyone. There are new TDs in there now, actually. Yeah, 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 there's there's lots of new TDs and it's like anything. I think anyone who, who might be listening to this who's interested in politics and who's saying, yeah, I'm kind of interested, but I couldn't do that. Just bear in mind, everybody has to learn. Every single person has to learn. Nobody walks in the finished parliamentarian on day one. It's like anything. It's like broadcasting. It's like any other world. It's very life. difficult though,
0: isn't it? Because it, we now live in a time when if you're inexperienced and you say something, like you were saying there the way you use the word conspiracy. Mm. But in your job, we're learning more than ever that saying the wrong thing can actually lose you your job yeah. as a minister. Doing the wrong thing, attending the wrong thing. Like it really can. So it, it is daunting, I'd say, for new TDs to 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 contemplate going in there when the stakes are so high. Yeah, exactly and you're I suppose the difference with this
1: life and job, you know, from others other really challenging work is that you're very much in the public eye and you have your triumphs and your disasters in, in the public. public eye and you make your mistakes very publicly. Yeah. And you have to apologize for them very publicly and you need to learn and to kind of regroup personally you know, in the public eye. So that's that's very challenging and I think for people coming into political life initially, that and public speaking seem to be two? the things that really, you know, really challenge people to get their heads around. But you, you learn how to do it. But yeah, it's
0: it's a peculiar thing. You're You're hired publicly, you're, you're fired, fired publicly. publicly. So it's tough, yeah. Can I come back to something we talked about earlier just to finally kind of make it a bit clearer because I don't understand it. Um, around Sinn Féin and the IRA, okay? Sure. So, we talked about, historically, like during the Civil War, the IRA, Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil and the IRA, and in the 1920s, all the talk around the IRA that surrounded Fianna Fáil and their mm. government. There is definitely still a narrative that Sinn Féin is connected to the IRA. Mm. Am I correct in saying that? I hear it, but sometimes yeah. it's like a meme you know like you don't know what to believe on the internet. Yeah. What is what is the connection there? Well, the IRA is gone. Like the the, the
1: war is over. I mean there's groups that call themselves the IRA, you know, and you see But they're not like they're, there is no But that's not the mainstream Republican movement or the IRA in 1994. Right. A ceasefire was announced in 1998. A peace agreement was signed by all parties, and that is the mo- those are the moments in which the the armed struggle, the war, concluded, and politics, like solely democratic parliamentary politics and uh, political activism, took over. took over.
0: And so, is it just the case that then there are still? Random people dotted around the country who do bad things or illegal things and call themselves the IRA. Well, there's
1: there's 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 small groups. It's unfortunately more than just random individuals. There's very small groups who from time to time carry out actions that are very destructive, that have no justification whatsoever in an era where you have a an absolutely legitimate and strong pathway to Irish unity. If that's what you're passionate about, as I am there is no call for armed actions. but There is every call for politics because that pathway is available. So, But
0: there are small groups. But and they're not connected to Sinn No, no.
1: Oh God, no, absolutely not. In fact, they, they regularly um, condemn us and very often threaten us. No, absolutely not. Well, Jesus, no, we're not in flavour of the month with them at all, at all. No. So in February,
0: uh, Drew Harris, who's the Garda Commissioner who took over after Noreen O'Sullivan stepped down. Um, He said that he had the PSNI, the Police Service in Northern Ireland, and on Angarda Schiawona, and MI5, who are like the British version of the CIA. Spooks, yeah. They had proof that Sinn Féin were connected to the IRA. Was that what he said? No. No, he didn't say that. Okay. What he said was...
1: So he had been in the Northern Police Service and the RUC before coming down and becoming the Commissioner. For that reason, he was a wee bit controversial when he came yeah. down, right, Drew? So he was asked, do you stand over a report that the Northern Police uh, published? And naturally enough, the man said, yes, I do. He wasn't going to say anything else. I wasn't okay. surprised by that. And what the report actually says, now listen to this, okay. is that they had the word... Of unnamed sources, former IRA activists, that in their opinion, these unnamed people, that the IRA ran Sinn Féin. So there's no fact. So it was kind of d'orch ban lum, g'norch ban Leahy. It was like, he said, she She said, I said you. And I just want to make this very clear. I'm the leader of Sinn Féin. Yes, I am a woman. Yes, I am from Dublin. And for some people... It challenges their kind of stereotype to to absorb the fact that a woman can lead Sinn Féin and I don't, be in charge. I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking to this narrative yeah. that you've identified out there. I am in charge. I, I also work collectively with her. I'm not some kind of a, you know, a targer or, a, you know, I don't go issuing commands or edicts. we yeah. a collective leadership. But it is just daft at this stage to suggest that anybody other than the democratic appointed and elected leader of the parties in charge and I, it's it's a thing that's been a frustration for me as leader of the party I because can imagine there has been just just a little echo of misogyny and sexism in it, just that little bit and
0: i not anyway, i'm not to defend it because it is there's so much misogyny that goes around to women in politics but I think that the fear comes from seeing you and how competent you are and how personable you are, the amazing you work. Like, I think I fell in love with you during repeal. I was like, (laughs) this woman is incredible. And seeing, if I were, if I were in the IRA and trying to cover up, if I were, if Sinn Féin were connected to the IRA and I didn't want that to be known and I wanted to debunk that myth, the strategic move would be put someone like yourself as the palatable face of Sinn Féin. I think that's what people, I think that is the fear, rather than, she's not capable of being the leader. So there must be other men in the background doing the commands.
1: So the only way that you can kind of, if that's a genuine fear, and I hear that, you know, because unfortunately, you know, when you hear things and they're repeated again and again, smart people and good people kind of go, "Mm, I wonder, is there something in that? The only thing I can say is this, meet Sinn Féin people. Like, it's not as if I am solely, you know, the exception within. I mean, but look at our look at our doll team. Look at them. Look at look at our team in the assembly. Look at the the people who are members of Sinn Féin. And what you find is people from every walk of life, every you know, from men, women, all across the land, urban, rural, and we are we are people from different experiences who politically
0: believe have vel- have in belief. the
1: things that we believe in. And yes.
0: But then you have now, in fairness, people like David Culnan in Waterford who actually shouted up the RA when he got elected. You must have been fit to kill him. Well, (laughs) let's say
1: we had words. And David's a great guy and he's a really, really good TD and really competent. And I I can only say a rush of blood to the head or whatever, but he was very embarrassed. Yeah. I mean, mean, he's very embarrassed because not least it came across as a little bit a little bit, I don't know, immature. or yeah. So he was embarrassed and he apologised. He apologised he apologized to me, but I mean, he, he apologised more importantly, more um, generally. And I, I would feel
0: very certain that that's not going to happen again. Yeah. And then um, there are some... So do you feel, I guess, getting away from Sinn Féin and more to politics in general and coming back to that misogyny thing, are there times when you are in Dáil Aaron where you are acutely aware of... How low the gender quota is, and how you are kind of a woman in a man in like just in a man's in world. suits, followed by surrounded by suits.
1: I remember when I came into the doll the very first day. I was there walking through the gates, and then we went into the chamber. And whatever way it looks on television, when you're actually sitting in it, it's much smaller. Mm-hmm. So, like if you were having a ding dong a barney with someone, you can quite close. Touch, like you could nearly touch them on the nose if you'd long arms. That's why you you're know? on
0: the convention center.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> And I remember that day sitting down and looking around and it's only when the place was full saying to myself, OK, this is out there, you know, because the mere fact of being a woman marked you out as different. There was so few of us, you know, and. It's I mean, we've made some progress, but we're not there yet. And the last thing I want to sound like is, you know, you know, the moaning woman, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm not because I, I don't believe that we're victims. I believe we're strong, we're smart, we're capable and more of us should be involved in political life, not to try and do down men. I love men. I mean, I'm married to one. Yeah. You know, I have a son. I'm an Irish mammy. So men are great and men have huge contribution to make, but women too. So you can't say that you have politics is supposed to and democracy is supposed to be representative of the people. That's the basis of our entire system. That's the whole thought process. So you can't say that you're fully representative of the people when women are
0: there in such low numbers. You know, it's a contradiction in terms and why then? Well, not why. I'm not kind of equating the two. But Louise O'Reilly was doing. I thought she was doing stellar yeah. work on the health stuff. Mm-hmm. Where has she disappeared to? She hasn't disappeared any. Not anywhere. disappeared. She sorry. Has, yeah. <laughs> why Louise is, she not is in out the health?
1: Let me tell you about Louise. As as the She's leader. I could place Louise in any brief and Louise could do it. I mean, she's outstanding. Before she came into political life, she was a trade union official with CIP 2 and she's outstanding. Anybody who's ever had any dealings with her would just say, this woman is incredible. So she was in health. She did an incredible job there. Uh, And then we came out of the election and things moved on and COVID happened. And my view is... That the big one of the central issues that we are now going to have to deal with is underemployment and unemployment. Okay, We have youth unemployment figures that would make you cry, like in the 40s of percent. This is a huge problem. We need to get people back to work. We need to get people back to good work. Not kind of half by contracts, but decent work with decent conditions. And I need my best person on the job. Okay. And that's why Louise is there. It wasn't any reflection. Her work in health was outstanding. It was. It was Actually, it was. David Cullen and your friend <laughs> is in that brief.
0: He's not my friend. But,
1: uh, but as you mentioned, um, Louise is now dealing with that. And the reason she's there is because she'll do the job. Leah Varadkar has responsibility for workers' rights, a prospect that shen- sends a shiver down my back. So she's so there Louise to mark him. Louise is on it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Do you think that this new government or the current government will last the five years that it claims that it will
1: I'm always loath to kind of make these predictions because they they, they might do right. Um, uh, I hope they don't Um, and, and in saying that I'm conscious an election now as we're watching the COVID numbers grow and we're heading into the autumn and the winter I don't think that would be a wise move all round and we need to keep people safe Um. I mean, they're very chaotic. It's very rivalry driven, you know, Mihal and Leo and Leo trying to outshine Mihal. It's, it's very, you know, very strange. But more importantly, I, I see in the kind of core areas where, where things need to change, there's no appetite and there's no evidence of kind of a new departure in any of the big policies. So they'll stagger on. They, they could last for a number of years. I would anticipate that as the COVID emergency recedes and touch wood, we get a vaccine. Science needs to get this and get ahead of it, or good antiviral treatments. Mm -hmm. But once we get ahead of it, and when it becomes possible to have an election, I think I think the atmosphere will be
0: different. And what will you do differently in the next election?
1: Well, um, I think that we will renew our programme. Um, We'll go back out again and we, we will offer people an alternative based on common sense, deliverable, necessary change. And I'll bring the team out, Um, you know, the owner Brins, Pierre Doherty, Louise, all of the, all of us, because we're, we're a team. And I'm going to ask the people again to to give us the chance, give oh. us the chance to will be you? to be in government, to demonstrate what
0: we can do. And will you run more candidates? Yes. And if you're looking for people to join, why why should people join? Young people, are you looking for young people to join? People listening now, like, yeah, would you like Yeah, absolutely,
1: them to- absolutely. I would absolutely inc- I would encourage them to join Sinn Féin. If you are interested in the politics of change, if you're interested in a united Ireland, if you can, like me, see the massive potential that's there um, for, a for a new Ireland and for United are not just the the constitutional question, but in everything in terms of educational policy or cultural policy, the arts, whatever your thing is, um, join you're welcome. There's a place, there's a space in this party for everyone. We've at last time I asked, I think we've we're over fifteen thousand members now. Um, I would like us to get fifteen thousand more. There will never be too many of members. us. Um, And I think it's a really, really exciting time for people to be in politics. So if you're a Republican, if you believe in social justice like I do, Sinn Féin is your home. But to others who Sinn Féin, my politics might, our politics might not be your back. Get involved. You know, this is your world. And this is our chance now to really make things different.
0: Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Mary Lou. I certainly did. You can follow her on socials at Mary Lou MacDonald or at Sinn Féin. If you did enjoy this week's episode of the podcast, please rate it and review it on iTunes or Spotify. Share it with a friend. Put it on your Instagram stories. Tag me in it. Do whatever you can to make one other person listen to the podcast. I would be extremely grateful if I can get my listener numbers up, then I can get a sponsor and that will make this sustainable because otherwise I ain't going to be able to keep doing this. Our graphic is, as ever, by Kahlo Gara. Our music is by Only Ruin. And we are reco- we recorded this in the podcast studios and we are a production of <laughs> Head Stuff. <laughs> we... <laughs> It's becoming an ongoing joke that I don't know the full title of this, but we are a production of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. The Head Stuff Podcast Network. If I say it three times, I will remember it. The Head Stuff Podcast Network. The Head Stuff Podcast Network. The Head Stuff Podcast Network. Join me next week. Thank you.